This is Ken Root. In 1974, I started my broadcasting career in Oklahoma City. Don't ask me how I was hired because this was the top radio and television station in the state, WKY, owned by the Gaylord family. They also owned the major newspaper in the state, the Daily Oklahoma. The founder of that newspaper, radio station, and several other enterprises was E.K. Gaylord, and at the time I went to work, he was over 100 years old. Now, he died shortly after I first appeared on his stations, and I continue to deny any involvement in his passing. Working at that radio and TV station was surreal, because many of the people I had never met, I knew. They were the local news and entertainment legends of the broadcast community I'd grown up in. I watched Foreman Scotty's kids' show when I was in the second grade on up until they canceled it, and I knew all the disc jockeys by name plus the news anchors. Very shortly after I started, a young woman came to the newsroom as a reporter. Her name was Linda Cavanaugh. She zoomed to prominence within the male-dominated news department and did some impressive investigative reporting. She became an anchor in the evenings a few years later, and held that post until retirement. Linda was always herself, and under the pressures of a public career, lived what I observed to be a normal life. Linda, how are you today? I am so well, and it's so nice to hear your voice again, Ken. I've missed you. Well, thank you very much. And saying that after that brief few years we were together, and then the many years we have not seen each other, I take that as a great compliment from you. Can you believe that we started at Channel 4 back in the mid-1970s? I know. It seems like yesterday, and yet look how long it's been. I ended up being there 40 years. You worked for three television stations at that time, WKY, KTVY, and KFOR, and they were the same station. (laughs) That's exactly right. They kept changing (laughs) the name on us, but it was the same station. Yeah, it was a great station. When I was growing up, my grandfather was a farmer down in Norman, and he always started his day listening to Russell Pearson and the Farm Report. Mm -hmm. So I only thought Channel 4 existed. It was never on any of the other local affiliates. So I just assumed that was the only television station in the state. Well, it was uh, the radio and TV dominance that the Gaylords had was truly amazing, Um, especially what happened to the radio station in years after that, that they just let it go. But the television dominance uh, got broken up in 1976 because uh, they owned too many properties in that town, and the FCC made them sell one. So they sold the TV station, hence KTVY came along. And then we had a a number of different owners over the ensuing years. It was very nice to be owned by a local person because they had a commitment to the community. Not to be criticizing our owners after that, but it made a difference. Well, I would certainly criticize everybody past 1996 (laughs) because that's when they didn't have to have any real local accountability radio or TV, and people owned huge numbers of stations, and they tried to make cookie-cutter administrations out of them, and it was not fair to the broadcast community, which had been given so much more. It seems to me like if there's any area that has fallen off and what has been given to the people they serve, it is radio and television that's not locally owned. 
I think that does make a huge difference. There's no sense sometimes of responsibility, perhaps. There's no one that you have to account to. I want to do a little old home week here to begin with, and then I'd love to talk about your career. And for those people who know you, you know, as I said, they never met you, but they know you. Uh, It is interesting, I think, to find out more from a person who then sits in a little different position, which you're not on the TV station or radio station talking to them now, and neither am I, but yet we're both alumni of there. We worked with some amazing people. I just can't believe some of the legends that we walked in to be a part of the operations they were a part of. Oh, you're absolutely right. Channel 4 attracted the best in the nation because Channel 4 was one of the best in the nation. Mr. Gaylord and company started that television station as the first one west of the Mississippi, which is why we ended up with a W in our call letters, because those were usually reserved for the people east of the Mississippi. So he was a pioneer, and everyone who worked at that station went on the air. When it went on the air, was a pioneer because it had never been done. And it was just an incredible experience to work with those type of people who were trendsetters. I mean, the first color televisions, the cameras, the studio cameras, the first local station to have color in their studio cameras was Channel 4. So they always set the mark to be the best and to have the equipment that needed to get you there. When we came into the station, uh, the news director, that was his title at the time, was Ernie Schultz. And Ernie had been there about 25 years, as I recall, at that time. And he had established himself as one of the most ethical, hard-driving people I have ever been around in the news business. How did you see him? Absolutely the same. I think anyone who worked for him had a respect for what he thought the ethics of television journalism should be, and he upheld those the entire time he was there. And it set a framework for knowing what was expected of you and what you should expect of yourself. So it made a huge difference. It was always a a television newsroom that required you to have both sides of the story, always, and in the same story, so that people had a a good view of what the uh, controversy might be about. And I think that was a godsend for viewers. He was, by today's standards, stiff. He was of the old style. He stood up for the newscast, talked directly into the camera without a teleprompter. He did those things on the noon news, And he didn't want to do the other newscast. He wanted other people to do them because he was the administrator. And basically, I found him several times doing jobs that were not the the glamour jobs at all. He thoroughly enjoyed, from my perception, running a, a television newsroom that had its sights on the ethics of journalism and the principles of good reporting. And I feel lucky to have been there to learn those from him because it made a huge difference in the ensuing 38, 39 years of my career. Well, let me talk about a few people. And if you're not from Oklahoma City, you you actually may have seen some of their work. You may have been involved with them, but you didn't know them like we did. 
There was a chief photographer there when I came in whose name was Daryl Barton. And it was about the same time that the Lou Grant show was on that had a photographer as one of the characters who was called Animal. And I thought Animal actually was better dressed and better looking than Daryl Barton. But Daryl was a genius with a camera and had an ability to do things under pressure. He's a former Marine. I, I've never had a guy that I liked as much and disliked it much all at the same time as him. Oh, I think that you pretty well characterized Daryl. He, he had enormous talent. And as you know, he went to work for uh, the networks after he left Channel 4 on some of their huge projects because he was such a good photographer. And he understood that with television news, it was the video that set us apart from anything else. Wasn't he part of the news team that got to go in where Saddam Hussein had been found? Am I drifting too far on that one? After he left Channel 4? Yes, in Iraq, in 01. I, I think or, that you're right. I think yeah. that you're right, but I can't confirm that. But I believe that that is true. Yeah. yeah. Now, here's a guy on the other side of this spectrum by the name of Bob Dotson. And if you watched NBC and the Today Show, Bob Dotson was a fixture there doing these stories uh, from across America, uh, Pursuit of the American Dream, for literally 40 years. And Bob left us in 1976, but you and I had a period of time with him. He was a howdy doody looking guy, a great writer, a very good voice, a tremendous editor. And he and Barton had worked together on some stories that Bob wrote and Daryl shot that won the first real Emmy that Channel 4 had ever won. You're right. It was called Looking um, Through the Looking Glass Darkly. And they did that with Oliver Murray, who was the first black uh, photographer in the newsroom. And that trio put together a history of of the black experience in Oklahoma at that time. And this, of course, was long before it was anything that um, was making the headlines. Well, Bob, over time, and he's on the Internet now as a storyteller, and he loves to weave these stories together, and you can't help but be drawn into his stories because he just finds such color in everything that we have he laughed about himself so much. You know, he used to say that he won the Howdy Doody Lookalike contest in the St. Louis area when he was 12 years old and things like that. But he went on to a 40-year career with NBC. That's remarkable. I mean, for anyone to stay at the network for that long, but it shows that his type of reporting was not only respected but needed because they don't keep you along for the ride if it's not bringing in viewers and if, if people don't enjoy watching you. So if you want to ever look it up, folks, Bob Dotson, you can friend him on Facebook and you can see a lot of his work, but he's absolutely was great and remains that way today. You, Linda, were not the first woman on the air on Channel 4. That was Pam Henry, and Pam was almost our age. Can you tell me a little bit about her coming on the air as you remember it? Well, Pam Henry was remarkable. She was, uh, she had polio as a, a child and grew up on crutches, which she had to continue to use throughout her life. 
And Bob Dotson told me, I wasn't there at the time, but Bob, Bob Dotson told me that they were looking to hire their first female. And they didn't know where to turn or what to do. But Bob told me that he was in Norman covering a fire. And as he stood out there watching whatever this was burn, because it was apparently a significant fire, here comes this young woman barreling past him on her crutches with her microphone in her mouth, holding onto it because her hands were occupied with the crutches, and the recorder around her neck. She was working for a local radio station at the time, and she barreled through that line and got up there and talked to the fire chief and talked to everyone who was concerned with the fire. And Bob Dotson told me he went back and told Ernie Schultz, I found our first female reporter. And that's how I think Pam Henry got hired at Channel 4 and made a remarkable career with her talent. I have never heard that story of Pam. When I came there in 74, they had her coming in and doing the early mornings. And uh, she was determined above all else. She was a beautiful, she has passed since that time, so I speak of her in past tense. But she was a beautiful young woman with legs that were very, very small. But the rest of her, and especially her heart and her character, very, very large. She was, she was beautiful, uh, and she did not have a disability. If you looked at her with a disability, that was your problem, not hers. She could just will her way through things, as you said. And the fame of her was that she was a poster child for polio, and she was the last poster child for polio. I believe she was like five years old when this vaccine came out. She didn't want to get the shot, or her mother didn't make her get the shot, and she got polio. And one of our friends from radio, I think Don Sherry, did a piece on her just a few years ago called The Last Poster Child. And it was a beautiful, beautifully done piece. And it, it highlight, highlighted what made Pam so great. And that was an ability to look past her physical uh, challenges and to almost ignore them to be able to do what she did. And she, by golly, she did it. I want to talk about one of the most off-the-wall people we had. We were in a news department after they built the new part of it in the late part of the 70s. We were there together from 74 until I left in 80. And you went on for the rest of your career. And I understand they never did anything to that building that was new at the time. So was it just worn out by the time you retired? We had a lot of Band-Aids around the entire station. <laughs> and, and of course, when, when they decided to build the new station, which was actually decided, again, we had a, a whole shift of owners in those later years. And so one station decided they were, I mean, one owner decided they were going to build a new station. So it was put into, uh, into the works. And all repairs basically stopped on the old station, but it didn't get done for several years after that. So it was um, it was hobbling along with a lot of help while we were still in that old station. I want to add one more thing about Pam Henry. Pam became the weekend anchor and uh, was doing that for a period of time before she married a man who was working for Senator Boren 
and she and uh, her husband went to Washington, D.C. And one of the things we did that probably we shouldn't have done, but we got away with it then, Linda, was we did videos, actually they were just film at the time, of goodbyes to people who were leaving the station, or happy birthdays, you're laughing, to people who were, were having a 40th birthday. And on Pam's, we set it up, I think I shot it and you edited it, that people could come in and apply for her job. And we had all these characters in the television station who knew it was for fun, and then we showed it at a party, and it was a hoot, I will have to say. I'm just glad we were operating in the era we were in. Had that ever left that showing, we would all be in a lot of trouble, I fear. <laughs> it was a whole different world. What was done in jest was done in jest, and it stayed there, and and you laughed and you went on. But it would not, uh, I'm yep. glad that it didn't get out. <laughs> Let me talk about a guy that, interestingly, we worked with there, and then I worked for him later on, and that was Steve Ramsey. Ramsey came in just after you and I to the newsroom, uh, a hard-driving young guy. Uh, He was leaning towards sports at the time, it appeared, but then he moved into doing more in the newsroom, and I think became assignment editor in the newsroom, and... In Oklahoma City, he and I were good friends. I saw his talent, and then, I'll get you to comment on him in a moment, he took off chasing the dream, and I think he went to Houston. And during this interim period after I left, I went to Wichita, Kansas, and that television station was all changed around, uh, four stations in western Kansas. They put a whole lot of money in it, and they went out looking for talent and they brought in Steve Ramsey to be the news director who had been schooled under Ernie Schultz and worked with us in Oklahoma City. And that was quite a ride, I have to say, Linda, of working for Steve. There's a person in a newsroom who sits up at the assignment desk and he or she determines basically what's going to be done and who's going to be doing it, how much time you have and that type of thing. And when he did that, he ran a tight ship. So I I suspect as a news director, he was fabulous. Well, he was because he was rambunctious. One of the women who worked for him in Wichita defined him more as a locker room speech coach because he wanted you to get out there and just do it. And he was in, he had Ernie's structure. He he went far beyond that. We had uh, money to spend to do news stories. And during the time that I was at that station, in a three-year period, we rolled the news there from being, as they said, the number four station in a three-station market to number one. And it was a ride I will never forget. That's incredible because that takes a lot of doing to change viewer preferences. Because once people get used to watching one station, they tend to stay with it unless they have a reason to leave. Well, being an early woman anchor, Mm -hmm. um, was the woman side of it the hard part or just anchoring and being what the viewers wanted, the ratings showed? What was the hardest part of it? Uh, I can remember the day he called me into his office 
and he said, we're going to try an experiment. I said, oh, what's that? He said, we, we're going to, to have a female co-anchor. I said, well, that'll be interesting. He said, we want you to do it. I said, oh. And I said, uh, he said, I don't know that it's going to work. He said, it may not work three weeks, may not work four, may not work a year, but we're going to try it. I said, well, okay. And I remember going home to Will and I said, I could lose my job very shortly because <laughs> <laughs> they're starting this new thing and, and no one really knows whether it's going to work or not. So we started living on Will's paycheck just in case. And uh, it turned out working very well because my last newscast there was some, I guess, 35, 36 years later. Well, you weren't exactly a Connie Chung, were you? (laughs) I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. She had her fans. (laughs) Well, she did. She worked uh, with Dan Rather and it didn't work at all. Yeah. But of course we both knew of Rather and he had a very different personality. So who was your co-anchor? George Tomic and Brad Edwards. George Tomic at six and Brad Edwards at 10. And that was before they had all these additional shows that they continue to add later. I think to begin with, it didn't make any difference whether you were an anchor or a reporter or a photographer. The hardest part to begin with was being a female in, a, in an all-male newsroom. Now, Pam absolutely broke that barrier, but it didn't end... Um, the feelings of a lot of people that women had no business being in a newsroom. I can remember working with one photographer who wouldn't even speak to me the first six months I was there. You know, we would go out on an assignment. If, if I was lucky enough to have a photographer, we also shot our own film at the time and he wouldn't even talk to me. And that was not unusual in those days because they had an all male Uh, party going on and they were not just real happy to have females there because it changed a bit of the culture you know you you may not be complimented by this but i never saw you as a woman (laughs) i saw you as one of the team and you had the mouth of a sailor every once in a while when we were out doing things and you stood them off if there was a problem but you were a team player and you were as tough as anybody else. And I think that's probably a secret of your success, Linda, whether you want to admit it or not. Well, I appreciate that. I, I grew up in a family of four girls, but my father had grown up in a family of five boys. So truthfully, he didn't, he didn't treat us like little frilly girls. I mean, we were doing all the things guys would do from the time we were born. In terms of of unusual things, whether it was travel or building campfires or or bringing in, you know, the hay from a farm or whatever. So I never really had this idea that I had a certain role, that whatever needed to be done just simply got done. And I, I credit my mom and dad with that. There was there were no parameters of you can do this because you're a woman or you can't do this because you're a woman. You could do anything you wanted as long as you worked hard enough to do it. Well, you say that Pam Henry really broke that glass ceiling, but I do think you've got a few shards in your hair as well of getting us um, equalized in some ways. And certainly it's so much, it, it, it soon became that. I mean, we had women photographers uh, in your era as well as men uh, at, in Oklahoma City. I think Ernie's to be credited for that. He just wanted the best person to do the job. Simple as that. 
Well, you're exactly right. And I can remember some of the uh, people, some of the, the staff in the newsroom saying, women don't need to be here because they can't carry those cameras. Well, the cameras weighed about 23 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, we don't have any trouble carrying 23-pound babies, so I don't know why we couldn't carry a 23-pound <laughs> camera. So <laughs> I, uh, I think that made a point. Henry Bellman was a U.S. senator at the time that you and I were there in the 70s. And uh, Pam Henry came in one morning, said, last evening I ran on a story with a a newsman who was photographer as well. And he told me that I just had to do my part of carrying the gear. And so she said, I got a light case and I balanced it on my crutches. And we were coming in after the senator had already started speaking. And she said, I managed to get through the door and I made some noise And the senator looked over at me, and here's the guy carrying the camera, but Pam is lugging this big light case around. The senator stopped his speech, went over, took the light case from her, set it down in the photographer's area, and then went back up and finished the speech. Good for him. Apparently, um, that photographer had to answer to Ernie for, you know, what the heck was he trying to do that Pam was doing her part. But, uh, yeah, I think that that animosity was there, without a doubt, from some people, but not from everybody. In fact, not from the majority. And you and Pam both prove your worth in spades. So I'm happy to see that you were the pioneers who made that transition. Let me finish by talking about your specific career and a couple of areas. And one of my friends who has always watched you and admired you wrote me and he said, Ken, I understand you're thinking about talking to Linda Cavanaugh. So he said, you know, you and she can do old home week for a while here, but then the rest of her career, you didn't get to see her. So he said, here are the two things that he thought were the most important of yours. And one of them was that you did an in-depth series on Native Americans in Oklahoma, the title was Strangers in Their Own Land, and it was an award-winning series, and I understand it was meaningful to you and quite well-received. Well, it was meaningful to me because I grew up here in Oklahoma, and our Native population is tremendous. I mean, I think we have something like 30 tribes here in Oklahoma, and growing up, Uh, my dad taught with a man who was married to a Native American, and and they were very close family friends. So we had a a little bit of experience uh, with the Native Americans. And this was at a time when they still were, they were living in the shadows of, of every other culture here. They existed, but you didn't really know it. And so photographer Tony Stiz and I spent about a year traveling the back roads of Oklahoma and visiting Native Americans in their hometowns, in their uh, communities, until we garnered enough of their trust. And they were understandably reluctant to talk about many of the things they did. But until we gained their trust, it was an uphill battle. But once we did, they were so very gracious in opening up tribal ceremonies and tribal beliefs that they had 
they had literally hidden for so long for fear of losing them. And I think in doing that series, we we opened some doors of understanding that didn't exist before. And I was very proud of that. And I was very proud of the new relationships I had with these Indian um, people because they are a tremendous group. And of course, things have changed so very drastically since then with their casinos and they have the funding and they have the medical um, needs often met that they, they didn't have back then. Most of them lived in poverty. So it was a much different scenario than we have now. But it was remarkable. We attended ceremonies that, that non-Indians had never seen before. And I feel grateful for that, whether it was Indian weddings or any number of different type things. They were more than um, welcoming to us, and I'm grateful for that. Interestingly, Bob Dotson and Daryl Barton did some stories on the Native Americans in Oklahoma in the mid-1970s. And I wonder if there's any parallel between what they did and you did as uh, have you, surely you have seen Bob's documentary on that. Uh, Did that give you any base to work from? I have not seen it, uh, and I would like to see it. I can remember one day in particular for maybe explaining why I haven't seen it, we had a new owner and the new owner of the television station wanted a bunch of stuff cleared out. And so they brought in these dumpsters and were throwing away all the archival films and all the archival tapes that had been shot by the newsroom for decades. And Tony Stiz and I were appalled because there, there went the history of what had been done at that television station. So we called the Oklahoma historical society and they came out and retrieved those videotapes and film canisters and took them to the Historical Society and, and in the past 10 years or so have been going through them and archiving them so that they still exist. So I bet I can go down there and see it. But no, I never did see his work on that. Well, I'm glad you retrieved those, Linda. But I have to say that story is nothing compared to mine. Tell mine me. is that I was walking through, when I first got to Channel 4, in the back prop area where they had all those props up in all those racks, and there was Woody the birthday horse. And Woody the birthday horse was the ultimate for me as a little boy to get a chance to ride. My mother would never take me on my birthday down there. I never got to see Woody when I was a little kid, but at 24 years of age, I got to see Woody. And I used to go back there and think, oh, my goodness, what would it have been like to have been a little kid and ride Woody? Well, about two years after that, I see them in the back on the loading dock with all this junk that they are pushing up there. And uh, I went up, and here was Woody. And they were going to load him on a truck and throw him away. And I went in to the stage director, and I said, You cannot do this. You cannot throw Woody away. Where is Woody today? Uh, He's at the Historical Society. He was in the front building of Channel 4. He was in the front office of Channel 4 for years. But anyway, my point is that I saved Woody. (laughs) (laughs) That's a 
that's really remarkable. I didn't know that story. It's funny how places are like that and the things that they have done. Okay, I'm losing my, I'm drifting away from what you did. Many people say the most significant story that ever happened in Oklahoma City was the Murrah Building bombing that Timothy McVeigh was later convicted of doing. Where were you when that happened and how involved were you as a reporter? As circumstances would have it, Tony Stizza, who was the photographer I worked with mostly, he and I were in Vietnam with a former Vietnam POW because we were doing a documentary on the fall of Saigon. And it was the middle of the night and I'd gotten up to, um, to do something. But in Vietnam at that time, you had to have your uh, room card in this slot by the door to turn on the electricity for the whole room. And so I put that in the slot. I put my card in the slot and the lights came on and the television came on. And I heard this voice that I recognized from Oklahoma City. And I thought, what in the world is she talking about? And it was a reporter from Channel 4, and she was talking about the Oklahoma City bombing. And they were showing this the initial press conference that they were having of all of the, um, the police chief and the fire chief and the mayor and uh, federal authorities. And the bombing had happened only maybe three hours earlier. And so I called Tony Stizza, who was upstairs in a different room, and said, you've got to turn your television set on. And so he did. He said, oh, my God. So I called Channel 4, and I said, what do you want us to do? And the news director said, come home now. And so we started the process of coming home. But we were uh, – it was difficult to get out because we were under the communist uh, – guidelines of what we could and couldn't do and we weren't supposed to leave for another four days and it was a matter quite frankly of of spending some money and bribing some people to get our credentials changed so we could get out the bombing happened on wednesday morning i was back on the air by friday morning but coming home on the flights everywhere we stopped when they looked at our passports and saw we were from oklahoma everyone said oh my God, we are so sorry. And it was on all the television stations in the lobbies of the airports. And it was a phenomenal life-changing event for many in Oklahoma and continues to be. So Tony and I spent the next year doing a, a documentary called Tapestry, looking at the bombing and looking at the people it affected. And we followed many of the victims through that one year period to show how they put their lives back together. And one of the uh, people that we followed was Susan Walton, who is said to be the most critically injured who survived. And by golly, she went through a lot. And so we were at her doctor's appointments. We were at her physical therapies. We were there when she took her first steps again. So I think it, it brought a sense of closure is not the right word at all, because I'm not sure there will ever be closure but it brought a, a sense of knowing what happened during that year that followed that showed the strength of Oklahoma people to have to make it through something like that. It was, it was incredible. And we were lucky that it was rec recognized as the, the top uh, program in the nation, even considering the, the networks in terms of being honored for 
for the extent that we went to in trying to explain what happened, how it happened, and then uh, where we were going from there. And well, it was a huge story, and yeah. uh, who better to report it than somebody who was from there and in the middle of that. And the last part of this is that I was I was following this, obviously. My brother had had an office in the Murrow building, but... He wasn't there, and the morning of the explosion, I called him at work, and he said, Kenny, there's a something happened. There's a huge, huge blast. He said, we all pulled off the road because we thought there had been a wreck, and then we went on, but he said, I don't know what it is as of yet, and so I just turned around and turned the TV on in the AgriTalk um, building where I was, and, and it popped up immediately, and I believe it was Channel 9's helicopter that made the swing in there live on the first stuff to see it and I thought this is unbelievable but I followed everything along to the point that McVeigh had uh, decided he did not want to appeal uh, for his life anymore and then they were going to have the execution and uh, you were on NPR that I heard from far away uh, reporting on the execution so you apparently were there I was I was there covering uh, the, the execution, <clears throat> excuse me, and they determined that a certain number of journalists would be allowed in. Some of those would reflect the national media, some would reflect the local media of Oklahoma City, and so they had a drawing, and we drew from this box that had these little blue tickets in it, and and my name was drawn to be one of the witnesses at the execution. There were probably about seven, eight of us. And we had to get on a bus that morning, hours before the execution. And we sat on that bus for hours. The only thing we were allowed to take into the the viewing area was a, a pad of paper they gave us and one pencil. And that was it. And so we were herded into this building and it was very small, the area that we were confined to. And there was a big window in front of us with a curtain uh, that was pulled across the front of it. And I'd say it was about eight feet deep, maybe 10 feet wide. And we just stood there until they opened that curtain and McVeigh was already on the gurney and was already hooked up. And they were attempting to get the cameras to work to show the execution in Oklahoma City to victims of the bombing who couldn't attend, but they they talked a federal judge into allowing it to be televised to them on a closed-circuit television. And the process began, and I had never seen an execution but in this case, his eyes never closed. He, he continued just looking at the ceiling, and, his, and that's the way he died. Uh, the color drained from his face, and that was it. He didn't move. And it, it, was, it was a very unsettling thing. Whether you think he deserved it or not, I can't you know, determine, determine what anyone's views is on execution. But it was, a, it was an altering experience, to say the least. I recall hearing your voice on NPR and knowing you and just sensing that this had been a traumatic thing for you 
but yet you, like the rest of your career, just sucked it up and did what needed to be done and were maybe out of body in your own way and your ability to report on it. It, it, was a, it was a strange and different experience, but I was happy to be there in terms of representing the people of Oklahoma. And so I felt a responsibility to do that and to do it as best I could. And I, I hope that they felt I did a good job. I hope so. I think you can be assured of that in your entire career. Linda Cavanaugh, you were in journalism for your entire adult life, working at the same television station. I see these cases and know several people who have had their career cut short because they said you're a woman and you uh, are not good looking anymore. Um, obviously, you held your looks totally from the time you were 24 until you retired. Um, and you also carried on in your journalistic work all the way through as an anchor, which I salute you for. Any observations you have of the news as it's covered today compared to the heyday of the time you were on the air? I'm concerned. I'm concerned because people don't know who to trust. And many of the facts that you hear, whether it's on the Internet or, sadly, on some of the, the cable stations, you can't trust the facts anymore. And I think a lot of that goes back to the fact that no one is required anymore to show both sides of the story, both sides of the controversy, both sides of the argument in the same story. So you have a lot of one-sided things, and people tend to watch what they believe to be the truth. And hearing what they already believe to be the truth reiterated and repeated makes them think that, that yeah, see, I'm right, because that's exactly what they're saying. But sometimes they're not getting both sides of the story. And so I don't think we have the type of information we need to be making, some of the critical decisions as a nation that we need to be making, unless you watch a variety of stations and read a variety of publications, you're oftentimes getting only one side of the story. And that does concern me. Saying that, would you recommend to a young person that they go into journalism? Absolutely. We need all the people with ethics that we can get. We need all the people who are committed to providing information that's truthful to the public. So I would recommend that anyone who is willing to do that get into it. If you're going into it for what some perceive to be the glory, you're going into it for the wrong reason. And you'll soon find that it doesn't satisfy you. If you go in for the reason that you think there is information that people need to know and you need to get it right every single time, then I think it can be a wonderful career. I was talking with Frank Cesno, who used to be with CNN and has been out on the ag speaking circuit several times. And he is teaching at George Washington University. And what you say and what he says are identical in the ethics of this business. We were taught by people, Ernie Schultz, um, and others in our original newsroom, how to report. As far as I'm concerned, none of the basics of that have ever changed. Just the technology and, of course, this change in ownership that desires to serve an audience that sends the most money into you. That's my point of view. And uh, now it's placed journalism in a, uh, 
in a category that a good journalist never wants to be in. I think you're right. And I can remember every advancement in technology that that our newsroom went through brought new dilemmas and new problems with making sure you did it right. I can remember a meeting we had when we were getting our first microwave truck, which enabled us to do live shots. Prior to that, there were no live shots. Mm -hmm. Everything was recorded, and what you saw could have been on the newscast, could have been four or five hours later. So a microwave truck gave you the ability to broadcast live, which we had never done before. And Ernie Schultz was very, very concerned about the ability to provide information that you knew to be accurate when you were seeing it for the first time along with the viewers and you didn't have a chance to confirm what was happening. I mean, you can look at something and have a a view of, you know, maybe it was that, maybe the bus did run the stoplight without being able to talk to the police officers on the scene to say, no, it wasn't the bus that ran the stoplight. It was this little car over here. Mm -hmm. That's a very simple observation but it, it can become very complicated. But it was always, all of these technological changes were always addressed with a look towards the ethics of how we were going to handle it. And I'm not sure that happens anymore. I believe the line used to be, I want you to get it first, but first I want you to get it right. Exactly. That's, that's, that was the motto of the newsroom. That's right. Linda Cavanaugh, it has been such a joy to talk to you because although we haven't spoken that much over this period from the 1970s till now, you're the same person you were when I knew you. You carried this through an entire career. You made us all proud. You've told us some great stories today. And although what I'm doing on this podcast won't exactly be as large as the coverage you may have gotten on some of the stories you've reported on, I certainly do appreciate you talking to me. Oh, my gosh. It was my pleasure. And so nice to hear your voice again. You were always so pleasant, always had a smile on your face, and always fun to be around. So I'm glad you're doing well, and I'm glad you're doing this. And on the radio, I am still good looking. <laughs> Thank Maybe you, Linda. On radio. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. <laughs>